Chapter 10 of The Recollections of Rifleman Harris, edited by Henry Curling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Retreat to Corunna At Sahagun we fell in with the army under command of Sir John Moore. I forget how many thousand men were there, but they were lying in and around the town when we arrived. The rifles marched to an old convent some two miles from Sargon, where we were quartered, together with a part of the fifteen hussars, some of the Welsh fusiliers, and straggling bodies of men belonging to various other regiments, all seeming on the quiviva, and expecting the French to fall in with them every hour. As our small and way-worn party came to a halt before the walls of the convent, the men from these different regiments came swarming out to greet us, loudly cheering us as they rushed up and seized our hands. The difference in appearance between ourselves and these newcomers was indeed, just then, very great. They looked fresh, from good quarters, and good rations. Their clothes and accoutrements were comparatively new and clean, and their cheeks ruddy with the glow of health and strength, whilst our men, on the contrary, were gaunt-looking, way-worn, and ragged. Our faces burnt almost to the hue of an Asiatic's by the sun, our accoutrements rent and torn, and many without even shoes to their feet. However, we had some work in us yet, and perhaps we're in better condition for it than our more fresh-looking companions. And now our butchers tucked up their sleeves and quickly set to work, slaughtering oxen and sheep which we found within the convent walls, whilst others of our men, lighting fires in the open air upon the snow, commenced cooking the fragments, which were cut up and distributing to them, so that very soon after our arrival we were more sumptuously regaled than we had been for many days. After this meal we were ordered into the convent, and, with knapsacks on our backs and arms in our hands, threw ourselves down to rest upon the floor of a long passage. Overcome with hard toil and long miles, our wearied men were soon buried in a deep and heavy sleep. In the middle of the night, I remember, as well as if the sounds were at this moment in my ear, that my name was called out many times without my being completely awakened by the summons. The repeated calls seemed mixed up with some circumstance in my dreams, and it was not until the noise awoke some of the men lying nearer to the entrance of the passage, and they took up the cry, that I was effectually aroused. From weariness and the weight of my knapsack, and the quantity of implements I carried, I was at first quite unable to gain my legs. But when I did so, I found that Quartermaster Surtees was the person who was thus disturbing my rest. Come, be quick there, Harris, said he, as I picked my way by the light of the candle he held in his hand. Look amongst the men, and rouse up all the shoemakers you have in the four companies. I have a job for them, which must be done instantly. With some little trouble, and not a few curses from them, as I stirred them up with the butt of my rifle, I succeeded in waking several of our snoring handicrafts, and the quartermaster bidding us instantly follow him, led the way to the very top of the convent stairs. Passing then into a ruinous-looking apartment, along which we walked upon the rafters, there being no flooring, he stopped when he arrived at its furthest extremity. Here he proceeded to call our attention to a quantity of barrels of gunpowder, lying beside a large heap of raw bullocks' hides. "'Now, Harris,' said he, "'keep your eyes open, and mind what you are about here. General Crawford orders you instantly to set to work, and sew up every one of these barrels in the hides lying before you. You are to sew the skins with the hair outwards, and be quick about it, for the general swears that if the job is not finished in half an hour, he will hang you. The latter part of this order was anything but pleasant, 
and whether the general ever really gave it, I never had an opportunity of ascertaining. I only know that I give the words as they were given me, and, well knowing the stuff Crawford was made of, I received the candle from the hands of Surtees, and bidding the men get needles and wax thread from their knapsacks, as the quartermaster withdrew, I instantly prepared to set about the job. I often think of that night's work as I sit strapping away in my little shop in Richmond Street, Soho. It was a curious scene to look at, and the task neither very easy nor safe. The riflemen were wearied, unwilling, and out of temper, and it was as much as I could do to get them to assist me. Moreover, they were so reckless that they seemed rather to wish to blow the convent into the air than to get on with their work. One moment the candle was dropped and nearly extinguished, the next they lost their implements between the rafters of the floor, flaring the light about amongst the barrels, and wishing, as I remonstrated with them, that the powder might ignite, and blow me, themselves, and the general to hell. Such were the riflemen of the Peninsular War, daring, gallant, reckless fellows. I had a hard task to get the work safely finished, but, at length, between coaxing and bullying these daredevils, I managed to do so, and together we returned down the convent stairs, and, finding Surtees awaiting us in the passage below, he reported to General Crawford that his order had been obeyed, after which we were permitted again to lie down and sleep till the bugle awoke us next morning. We remained in the convent part of the next day, and towards evening received orders to leave all our women and baggage behind, and advance towards the enemy. Our four companies accordingly were quickly upon the move, and before long we came up with the remainder of the rifle corps, which had recently arrived from England with Sir John Moore. As these men saw us coming up, they halted for the moment, and gave us one hearty cheer, allowing our four companies to pass to the front as the post of honour, calling us the heroes of Portugal. As we passed to the front, we returned their cheer with pride. Our worn appearance and sunburnt look gave us the advantage over our comrades, we thought, and we marched in the van of the vanguard. War is a sad blunter of the feelings of men. We felt eager to be at it again. Nay, I am afraid we longed for blood as the cheer of our comrades sounded in our ears, and yet, amidst all this, softer feelings occasionally filled the breasts of those gallant fellows, even whilst they were thirsting for a sight of the enemy. Some of the men near me suddenly recollected, as they saw the snow lying thickly in our path, that this was Christmas Eve. The recollection soon spread amongst the men, and many talked of home and scenes upon that night in other days in old England, shedding tears as they spoke of the relatives and friends never to be seen by them again. As the night approached, we became less talkative. The increasing weariness of our limbs kept our tongues quieter, and we were many of us half asleep as we walked, when suddenly a shout arose in front that the French were upon us. In an instant every man was on the alert and we were rushing forward, in extended order, to oppose them. It proved a false alarm, but it nearly cost me a broken bone or two. The Honourable Captain Packenham, now Sir Hercules Packenham, on the first sound of the enemy being in sight, made a dash to get to the front, at the same moment I myself was scrambling up a bank on the roadside. In the darkness and hurry, the mule the captain was mounted on bore me to the ground, and getting his forefeet fast fixed somehow between my neck and my pack, we were fairly hampered for some moments. The captain swore, the mule floundered, and I bellowed with alarm lest the animal should dig his feet into my back and quite disable me. At length, however, the captain succeeded in getting clear and spurred over the bank as I rolled back into the road. It might be somewhere about two o'clock in the morning that our advance into Spain was, for that time, checked, and the retreat to Corona might be said to commence. 
General Crawford was in command of the brigade, and riding in front, when I observed a dragoon come spurring furiously along the road to meet us. He delivered a letter to the general, who turned round in his saddle the moment he had read a few lines, and thundered out the word, To halt! A few minutes more, and we were all turned to the right about, and retracing our steps of the night before, the contents of that epistle serving to furnish our men with many a surmise during the retrograde movement. When we again neared Sahagun, I remember seeing the wives and children of the men come rushing into the ranks, and embracing the husbands and fathers they expected never to see again. The entire rifle corps entered the same convent we had before been quartered in, but this time we remained enranked in its apartments and passages, no man being allowed to quit his arms or lie down. We stood leaning upon the muzzles of our rifles, and dozed as we stood. After remaining thus for about an hour, we were then ordered out of the convent, and the word was again given to march. There was a sort of thaw on this day, and the rain fell fast. As we passed the walls of the convent, I observed our general, Crawford, as he sat upon his horse, looking at us on the march, and remarked the peculiar sternness of his features. He did not like to see us going rearwards at all, and many of us judged there must be something wrong by his severe look and scowling eye. Keep your ranks there, men, he said, spurring his horse towards some riflemen who were avoiding a small rivulet. Keep your ranks and move on, no straggling from the main body. We pushed on all that day without halting, and I recollect the first thing that struck us as somewhat odd was our passing one of the commissariat wagons, overturned and stuck fast in the mud, and which was abandoned without an effort to save any of its contents. A sergeant of the 92nd Highlanders, just about this time, fell dead with fatigue and no one stopped, as we passed, to offer him any assistance. Night came down upon us, without our having tasted food or halted, I speak for myself and those around me, and all night long we continued this dreadful march. Men began to look into each other's faces and ask the question, Are we ever to be halted again? And many of the weaker sort were now seen to stagger, make a few desperate efforts, and then fall, perhaps to rise no more. Most of us had devoured all we carried in our haversacks, and endeavoured to catch up anything we could snatch from hut or cottage in our route. Many, even at this period, would have straggled from the ranks and perished, had not Crawford held them together with a firm rein. One such bold and stern commander in the east, during a memorable disaster, and that devoted army had reached its refuge unbroken. Thus we staggered on, night and day, for about four days before we discovered the reason of this continued forced march. The discovery was made to our company by a good-tempered jolly fellow named Patrick McLaughlin. He inquired of an officer, marching directly in his front, the destination intended. By Jesus, Muster Hills, I heard him say. Where the devil is this you're taking us to? To England, McLaughlin, returned the officer with a melancholy smile upon his face as he gave the answer. If we can get there. More luck and grace to you, said McLaughlin. And is that your meaning, is it? This McLaughlin was a good specimen of a thorough Irish soldier. Nothing could disturb his good humour and high spirits. And even during a part of this dreadful march, he had ever some piece of Irish humour upon his tongue's end, whilst he staggered under the weight of his pack. He would in all probability have been amongst the few who did reach England, but, during the march, he was attacked with the racking pains of acute rheumatism, and frequently fell to the ground screaming with agony. On such occasions his companions would do that for him which they omitted to perform towards others. 
they many times halted, heaved him up, and assisted him forwards. Sir Dudley Hill, too, was greatly interested for MacLaughlan, trying to cheer him on, whilst the men could scarcely refrain from laughter at the extraordinary things he gave utterance to whilst racked with pain, and staggering with fatigue. At length, however, MacLaughlan fell one dark night as we hurried through the streets of a village, and we could not again raise him. "'It's no use, Harris,' I heard him say in a faint voice. "'I can do no more.' Next morning, when day broke, he was no longer seen in the ranks, and as I never saw him again, I conclude he quickly perished. End of chapter 10